Hello and welcome to The World Ahead from The Economist. I'm Tom Standage. During my career at The Economist, I've reported from all over the world, from Kampala to Tokyo and from Silicon Valley to Shenzhen. In each case, I went looking for clues in the present day about what the future might hold. Well, for this series, I'm going a step further. A vortex in the space-time continuum has enabled me to travel to the year 2042, or at least one possible 2042, to report directly from the future on four different topics. Food, health, education and climate technology. Once you've heard my report from the future, we'll return to the present day to talk about the chances of that particular scenario coming to pass. In this final episode of the series, we're considering the future of climate technology and specifically green aviation. So fasten your seatbelts, make sure your tray table is upright and prepare to be transported to the year 2042. Cabin crew, doors to automatic and cross-check. It's not there yet, but the aviation industry is finally on a flight path to becoming carbon neutral by 2060, in accordance with the Mumbai Climate Agreement. In part, that will be achieved through a greater use of electric aircraft for short flights. And there goes one now. For longer flights, airlines are making steadily greater use of synthetic fuels, which are made using carbon dioxide extracted from the air. Burning them in a traditional aircraft engine puts that carbon back into the atmosphere, so the resulting flight is carbon neutral. The airline best known for its advocacy of synthetic fuels is Clean Air. Since 2040, it's been using Synfuels exclusively. That same year, Clean Air also began to offer passengers the option to pay a bit more for their tickets to make them carbon negative. For every passenger mile flown, Clean Air promises to remove the resulting carbon emissions from the atmosphere by buying negative carbon emissions from carbon removal providers the airline could then boast that flying on a carbon-negative ticket actually helps fight climate change. This option has proved particularly popular with older consumers who feel guilty about the carbon-spewing flights they took in their youth. One of these customers is Craig, who's about to take a clean air flight to a sand skiing resort in Spain. Craig, why do you like flying on clean air? Yeah, I mean, of course I feel bad about those flights I took when I was younger. Um, We were all in denial at the time. You know, we knew climate change was happening, but we we still wanted to go on holiday. So by paying a bit more for a carbon negative ticket, I feel like I'm doing something to make up for it. You know, undoing some of that damage. Now stay with us, Craig. He and other passengers may be dismayed to hear that clean air is not as green as it claims. That, at least, is the accusation made by Climate Hawk, an activist group that has just published the results of its investigation of clean air. Jennifer Allard of Climate Hawk worked on the investigation. Jennifer, what did you find? What we found was extremely worrying. Some of the negative carbon emissions clean air is buying seem to be purchased from shady companies whose ownership and even existence is uncertain. Some of these companies even seem to be owned by clean air's founder and CEO. So just to be clear, you're saying that clean air is taking people's money for these carbon negative surcharges and is then just keeping the money and not actually buying the negative emissions that it claims to be. Clean air is buying some negative emissions, but it doesn't seem to be buying anything like enough of them. 
Or, to put it another way, it's selling the same negative emission to multiple passengers. So what evidence do you have for this? We looked at Clean Air's accounts. And from that, we were able to model how many tons of negative carbon the airline was selling each quarter. We compared that with activity on carbon exchanges and with Clean Air's carbon balance sheets. And the figures simply didn't tally. It's always been a mystery how Clean Air could offer negative emissions at such low prices. We think it's been cooking the books. Now, the company's released a statement this morning in response to the release of your report last night, denying any foul play and saying that any discrepancy that's there is due to unintended accounting errors. It's pathetic. They're just blaming their auditors. Well, they're saying they're going to have their carbon accounts re-audited for the past two years. And if any shortfall is found, they say they'll buy additional negative emissions to make up the difference. Isn't that the right thing for them to do? They're only doing this at all because we've exposed what they were doing. We demand full transparency. This was a scam. They were exploiting their customers' sense of climate guilt to make more money. Now, listening to all that was Craig, who's about to board a clean air flight. Craig, what's your reaction? Well, I'm shocked. I mean, I want to believe clean air when they say it's an honest mistake. But if they've been deliberately misleading us, then they're going to have a lot of angry customers. And I guess I now feel a lot less good about catching my flight. Jenny, what's your advice to people like Craig? Well, he could fly on another airline and buy his own negative emissions separately through an accredited carbon broker. It will cost more, but he would have more choice. And he'd be able to check that the negative emissions were genuine and properly certified. And isn't that the real problem here, the lack of clear standards around these negative emissions? Yes, that's part of it. There's an overlapping patchwork of standards, and that creates grey areas that unscrupulous companies can exploit. But there's also a deep problem with carbon auditing. This is just the latest example of auditors who seem to be looking the other way. So we are calling for action on that front, too. Jenny and Craig, thanks very much for talking to us. OK, I've now flown back to the present day. And with me are Katrine Brahek, our environment editor, and Nat Kohan, who is the president of the Centre for Climate and Energy Solutions and is a former White House advisor on energy and the environment. So welcome to you both. Kat, what's your reaction? How likely do you think this future is to come to pass? Uh, so, first of all, excellent acting. I thought that was absolutely... What do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, look, I can't wait to find out if that's the future that comes to pass. There's there's some interesting potential timing issues that I guess we don't necessarily know about. The problem with looking at anything in 2040, 2050 is just the uncertainties, right? We have no idea what's going to happen to synthetic fuels over the next decade, really in particular what's going to happen to the cost of synthetic fuels um, and also uh, carbon offsets. I'm interested to hear what Nat has to say about certification come 2042. I'm guessing he's going to hope that it's all solved by then. Well, um, let's, let's find out. Nat, what do you think? Where, where are we going to be in 2042 when it comes to uh, regulation around carbon offsetting and negative emissions and so forth? So I guess there's two prongs to your story that I think are worth teasing out, because one of them strikes me as being super optimistic by 2042, if I've got the scenario right. And the other one seems to me to be super pessimistic. And the optimistic one is that we would have an airline that was flying, as I understand it, with totally sustainable fuels. 
and that every flight would be either electric or on really genuinely sustainable fuels by 2042. If we are in that world in 20 years, that'll be incredible. I'm bullish on technology and innovation, but I will be very surprised if before we count credits, if we're at carbon neutral flight by 2042, that would be a huge win. What's pessimistic about your scenario is that it's 20 years in the future and we've actually moved backwards on carbon credits because the problem that the reporter cites is actually not even the problem I would worry about now for carbon credits, Mm. a problem of double counting or triple counting in the voluntary carbon market. We don't actually have to worry about that too much now. So that sounds like we're backsliding on carbon credits. That's very pessimistic, but we're in a world in which we've developed really reliable, sustainable fuels and electric planes. So you've got an interesting split there in your scenario. One can only hope. Yes, indeed. Okay. (laughs) Well, we'll dig into the details in a moment after this. Okay, let's talk about the optimism around the synthetic fuels first. Kat, there are quite a few companies working on synthetic fuels, aren't there? So how are they getting on? Yeah. So, I mean, as described in the scenario, these synthetic fuels basically are combining hydrogen that they get from splitting water generally with carbon that they get from basically sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere and and extracting the carbon there into these fuels that they can then run in planes. We're at the stage right now where it's very, very early stages. It's very much experimental. I think in December there was one microlite plane run by the RAF here in the UK with a synthetic fuel from a company called Zero Petroleum that did, I believe, a fairly short flight. So it's it's all very much at the demonstration stage. I think we're a very, very long way off from having anything like passenger flights. And the issue as ever is where do you get your energy from? How much does that energy cost in order to actually make the fuels? Right now, it's just incredibly expensive to do that. So how do you bring those costs down? Right. So the idea is that you use renewable energy to do that from, say, wind or solar or maybe nuclear. And then you use that energy to split the hydrogen from the water and to suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and then to combine them to make a a hydrocarbon. Nat, what's the the sort of hardest part of that? All of it? (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I think th- there's a couple of there's a couple of hard parts to it. One is technically, where do you get all of that renewable energy from, right? So, if we step back and we ask, okay, what's the context for this scenario, right? If the context for this scenario is a world, hopefully, with, that is moving towards net zero emissions of greenhouse gases globally, which is what we've got to do to stabilize the temperature, to get to that net zero emissions globally across the entire economy we need to be electrifying huge swaths of the economy. So we need to have road transport. And these were these would be things you would do sort of sequentially much before you got to aviation, which is kind of the hardest to abate of all sectors. So you need to have enough of renewable energy that you're really electrifying transport, you're electrifying buildings, uh, residential and commercial heating and cooling, electrifying as much as of, a, of industry as you can. And you've got to be powering the the current grid, right? And doing that with some combination, if we're getting to net zero, really, you've got to get to zero carbon electricity. So that's some combination of renewables, storage, and nuclear power, uh, and maybe some future innovation, right? And so you've got to build out a lot of renewable energy before you've got a lot on your hands extra uh, to start making synthetic jet fuel. Um, so one aspect is just scale, scale of the electric uh, generation system and, and scale of the renewable generation. The other piece is cost. Kat referred to this, but right now the cost of producing jet fuel 
with these synthetic technologies is many multiples of the cost of petroleum-based jet fuel. Obviously, we need to move away from petroleum-based jet fuel if we're going to meet our climate targets, but cost is the other big hurdle. There's work being done. Kat mentioned some of the sort of early stage technologies. Some of it is as simple as getting costs of current technologies way down. But I think the two biggest hurdles are scale and cost, right? Other than that, right, we're we're really on the way. But I think, I think it's an early stage technology, um, but it's going to take time to build it out. The other piece there is the idea of using um, electric aircraft. And we're hearing more and more about these, particularly for sort of short range flights. And people are talking about these eVTOL craft. There seem to be a lot of startups getting interested in that. What's the blocker? Why can't we have electric jumbo jets? Why can't we have electric planes to do all of this? I mean, in in a word, it's weight. Okay, so or energy density. Um, You know, one of the miraculous things, and I say this as an environmentalist who's worked my whole career on climate and sees getting to zero as net zero as, as a total imperative to deal with the climate crisis. But petroleum is a miraculous substance when you think about energy density. So you can pack a really huge amount of energy, enough to take a jumbo jet with hundreds of people across the world or halfway around the world. And you can do that on a relatively small amount of liquid fuel. Batteries relative to their energy output are much, 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 much heavier. So in other words, much less energy dense. And so the prospect of having enough batteries to carry a jumbo jet any distance, that would be so heavy that you'd have problems getting (laughs) almost sort of getting off the ground. I mean, that's why you see the electric flight, the electric airplanes that people are talking about as being really short haul flights. Now, I will say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, a lot of people ruled out electric flight at all. And so the fact that we're now talking seriously, and there are a number of companies, as you say, that are working on short haul electric aircraft, that does represent technology innovation. So maybe, you know, there's some incredible innovation in store that allows us to think about electric aircraft on long haul flights, but that's not currently visible on the horizon. Okay, great. Kat, coming back to you, how big a part of the climate change problem is aviation at the end of the day? I mean, people talk about it a lot. They, you know, the idea that flying on long haul flights is a big part of your carbon footprint. It is a big part of a lot of people's carbon footprint, isn't it? But how big a part of the world's carbon footprint is it? Yeah, I mean, at an individual level, if if you're uh, doing, say, transatlantic flights, then it is probably one of, if not the largest contributor to your personal carbon footprint. On a global scale, I think the latest numbers are it's um, an accounting for variation due to things like COVID and pandemics. It's roughly 3% of global emissions. But one, it's growing. Two, it's hard to see how you change that. So, you know, if you're looking at the share of carbon emissions that's accounted for by heating, for instance, there are opportunities. Nat talked about, you know, electrification, et cetera. We can do this for transport. But for long distance transport on planes, it's really difficult. And so I think the projections are that in the long run come, I think it's 2050, it could be more like eight, nine, 10% of global. And that's as a result of emissions from other sectors decreasing, but also demand increasing. Right. So the better we get at um, decarbonizing other things, the bigger the proportion of the remaining problem flight is likely to be. Nat, how can aviation be part of the solution to climate change here rather than part of the problem? Is that even possible? Well, I mean, I, I think the the aspiration would be that you zero it out as part of the problem, right? <laughs> right? And and I think I just want to underscore what you and Kat were just talking about, because I think it's useful to reinforce to your, to your listeners. Most people who are listening to this podcast Aviation is probably the highest parts of their carbon footprint, but that is not true for the world. 
So I think Kat said it exactly right. I mean, we do need to deal with aviation. One reason we should be thinking about aviation now is because there's so much innovation needed and so much technological change needed that we need to start on it now if we're going to get to the point where aviation is contributing to net zero emissions across the economy by 2050. And even by 2050, you know, by mid-century, it may be that there's still emissions from aviation because we haven't gotten all the way there on synthetic fuels or sustainable fuels. And we are still countering or balancing some of the existing aviation, the remaining aviation emissions with negative emissions by taking carbon out of the atmosphere. So I think aviation, it's important to work on now because the technological innovation is is so far reaching. And as Kat said, because it's demand is growing, presumably as country, we already see before the, I mean, before the pandemic, we were clearly seeing rising demand and people were projecting uh, aviation emissions tripling or quadrupling over the next few decades as a result of China and India coming online in terms of uh, middle and upper income consumers who want to take airplane flights. That's when the demand is going to start rising. So it's an, it's a problem we have to start preparing for and working on now. But as Kat said, it's a it's a small portion of the current emissions today. Well, one of the ways that the industry could make a difference would be if it agreed to buy an enormous amount of um, negative carbon tons, right? What's the state of play then? Let's move on to that part of things. What's the state of play around carbon offsets, uh, negative carbon emissions and so on? If I go out to the market now as an airline or as a consumer or as anyone else and say I want to buy negative tons of carbon, Nat, who do I go to and can I trust what they're selling me? Yeah. So first, let me step back and provide some context on what we often call the voluntary carbon market. The voluntary carbon market is made up of a whole host of people who are developing projects and reducing emissions or capturing carbon, all the way to verifiers of those projects and those emissions reductions and registries and brokers and talk to all the way to the buyers. The voluntary carbon market a couple of years ago was about 100 million tons of reductions. I think it climbed maybe to 150 or something last, last year, 2021. So of that portion, negative emissions, which would be actually pulling carbon out of the sky, there are a couple ways to do that. Most of it right now is nature-based solutions. So planting trees, of course, trees are the original technology that pulls carbon dioxide out of the sky and stores it. You can have agricultural carbon sequestration, as it's called, where you're managing soils. So they store more carbon, or you can have technological or engineering carbon removal or carbon storage where you're actually sucking carbon out of the sky in machines using a solvent that binds with the carbon dioxide and then you store it somewhere. So there are a handful of ways to actually remove carbon from the atmosphere, but that was a small fraction of that 150 million tons or so. Most of the voluntary carbon market now are reducing emissions. So for example, you can reduce emissions by using renewable electricity generation instead of coal or by replacing really inefficient cookstoves or by reducing deforestation in the tropics. So I think there is a need for more quality control. The quality of those credits, I think, varies pretty dramatically. There are some really good, high-quality ways of reducing emissions and or removing emissions from the atmosphere. And there are some ways that really don't add anything to the climate efforts. And in the jargon, they're not additional to what's going on. They're not real or verified emissions reduction. So right now there's a big spread and it really depends on what kind of projects and what kind of efforts you're looking at about whether those credits represent real additional emissions reductions relative to what we'd otherwise get. 
Okay, well, let's stay with that then. So how can I tell? What are the sorts of, you know, you go online, you can find all sorts of things that promise to put cook stoves in or, you know, solar power in India or whatever. Or you can go to someone like Climeworks, which is, you know, offering to suck stuff out of the atmosphere. How can I tell? Is there a standard? Is there a, you know, some sort of badge I should be looking for that tells me that this is an offset a carbon credit that I can trust? Not yet. So there are a number of a number of standards organizations. There are four main standard setting organizations that are quite good. The people are very good. They've been working on this for a while. But even those organizations, I think there's some variety because some of the kinds of emissions reducing projects that they oversee have have been around for 10 or 20 years and and probably are no longer really additional. So there is an effort underway that I'm part of, um, which is called the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market. And the goal of the Integrity Council is to come up with just this kind of threshold standard that could be applied across the board to all sorts of carbon credit methodologies, ways of generating these credits, emissions reduction, avoidance, and removal. So that across the board, uh, the goal is to have a kind of label or kite mark, if you will, of what good looks like, what the good credits are that really represent the state of the art, the the cutting edge of really good additional uh, verified emissions reductions. We're just getting started with that. The goal of that is to be able to reassure buyers the credits that meet that standard are real, that they are additional, that they are actually helping reduce emissions or remove emissions from the atmosphere, and that they're contributing on the pathway towards net zero emissions. Okay. So the reason you found my scenario from 2042, the reason you found my report from 2042 so (laughs) pessimistic then, is that it's 20 years later and there still isn't such a standard. And you're actually trying to build it right now. So so you're optimistic that it's it's going to take less than 20 years before we have a proper standard on this. That's exactly right. Exactly. Okay. Let's assume then that you managed to get your standard done in much less than 20 years. I think that sounds reasonable. What about the um, the voluntary nature of this? Because at the moment, companies can choose to do this, but they're not required to, are they? But we are starting to see you know, the SEC and other people saying, actually, we are going to start making aspects of carbon reporting compulsory. How do you expect that to change in the next few years? So there are basically two ways you can think of a regulatory framework coming in place around this. One is with respect to disclosure and reporting, you mentioned the SEC. Europe is also in the midst, uh, the European Union is putting in place a set of disclosure regulations. I think there's a proposed rule that would also require uh, disclosure around carbon credits. And I think the UK is also doing this. So one thing is where the use of these carbon credits is still voluntary. And the best examples of this, I mean, you you had an example where an airline was going above and beyond what it needed to do, but Microsoft, Google, Amazon, those are voluntary carbon commitments that those companies are making. They're not subject to regulation. Under these disclosure rules, they will have to, if they go forward as expected, those companies will have to disclose what kind of credits they're using, how they're using them, et cetera. That's one layer. There is another layer. There are markets in which the use of credits is compulsory. We think of those as compliance markets. The biggest one in the world is in the European Union. Right now, it mostly covers industrial facilities and power generation. So there's a cap and trade system or an emissions trading system that involves trading of credits. Those are different credits than in the voluntary carbon market, but conceptually, that's a compliance system. Here's one important area, which is that the aviation sector now has in place a system that for airlines that are part of the countries that are participating in the system is mandatory. It's called the Carbon Offsetting Reduction Scheme for International Aviation, or CORSIA. It was put in place a couple of years ago, uh, just on the eve of the pandemic. So in your scenario, we need to offset some portion of its emissions already under this 
existing program for international aviation. And that part is not voluntary for flights between countries that are participating. And by 2042, I think that'll be pretty much every country. So international flights now do need to be buying credits, and there are standards for those credits in the aviation sector. I think those standards could be a little bit better. Hopefully the work that we're doing, I mentioned the Integrity Council, hopefully that work will help raise the bar and we'll sort of the, maybe the aviation sector will say, okay, we'll follow the lead and we'll actually raise our standard a little bit and, and take on the standard that the Integrity Council is putting out there. So I'm hoping that the work we're doing in the voluntary carbon market will also find its way into strengthening some aspects of that compliance market. Kat, it feels like we've been talking about these sorts of things, tightening mandatory reporting requirements, introducing standards around carbon. I mean, I feel like I've been listening to this for like 10 years. Are we actually moving forward here? Because I'm tempted to say, isn't it all a lot of hot air? Um, (laughs) Hot air being the operative word. I I mean, I think we are. It is very, very slow progress. And establishing these kinds of standards has actually been the biggest sticking point in agreeing on the Paris Agreement rulebook. So there's there's sort of um, an article in there which Nat can go on at length about, but Article 6, which talks about precisely establishing these kinds of standards for an international carbon market. And that is the last outstanding article of the Paris Agreement that governments can't agree on. In fact, I think if we're looking for signs of progress, it's in fact moving away from this need to do it within the UN and this this need to have complete consensus over it into a system where it's more of a sort of well, it's voluntary, but it's also hoping that establishing standards in one part of the market is going to put pressure in, create a draw for the rest of the market as well. And to some extent, that relies also on demand, right? It relies on the fact that people have, as in your scenario, sorry, as in your report from the future, that people have this desire and uh, willingness to pay for high quality standards. So I think the short answer is yes, I think we're seeing progress, but it is incredibly slow. There are a number of these initiatives that are meant to be issuing their standards this year. Nat has has talked about those. So hopefully this year we'll see a bit of a turning point. How much to the, the extent to which that's adopted, I think we need to see. Wait to uh, see. Okay, the wheels are turning somewhere, at least. Okay, finally, I'd like to ask both of you, what aspect about the future of all of this are you most excited about on the one hand and the most worried about on the other? Who would like to go first? Uh, how about you? I do think that there's a lot of willingness around offsets. So excited about the lack of willingness, worried about the price would be the sort of very straight answer. I think there's a bigger issue here, which is the issue of guilt. So maybe most excited about flying without guilt, worried that that is going to be prohibitively expensive. Right. So we might get very good standards, but then the amount it will cost us to actually offset our flights would be so eye-watering that we will just say, you know what, I'll go to Cornwall instead. At current costs, most of us cannot afford it. Right. Okay. So uh, yes, this is all strongly reminiscent of medieval indulgences, isn't it? I mean, the whole the whole market, <laughs> to be quite honest. Nat, what are you most optimistic and most pessimistic about? Well, so I, I mean, I, I think I'll, I'll focus on the optimism because I'm I'm quite look I, I'm I'm quite optimistic or hopeful about the potential to really develop technological innovations as long as we get the rules right. So if we get the incentives right. If we get the rules right, if we put the standards in place that really ensure quality, and then we let the market go to work, my general view is that that's a recipe for success. There are lots of technological 
hurdles that need to be solved. But I'm optimistic that in 20 years, so my version of your scenario is not only that we've made significant progress, maybe not all the way to zero in synthetic fuels and other sustainable aviation fuels, but that we've got really high quality carbon removal and carbon reductions that are coming through the, the voluntary carbon market or the aviation carbon market in the case of Corsia. And so that the scenario of you know questionable dodgy offsets, that that's a thing of the past. And that instead what we have, we've sparked and catalyzed the development of cost-effective solutions that really are taking carbon out of the air, that have protected and preserved the world's rainforests through carbon finance, and that people are still able to fly, maybe a little less frequently, but they're still able to fly and they're able to do so knowing that those flights are not contributing to the climate crisis. Kat and Nat, thank you both very much. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Frank. For more insights into the future and the present, including a technology quarterly on climate tech, you can take out a subscription to The Economist at economist.com slash podcast offer. Thanks to Laurence Bouvard for the voice of the climate activist, Tom Pooley is the producer, and Sandra Schmueli is the executive producer. The World Ahead was a Tempo and Talker production. We'll be back with a new series of The World Ahead later in the year, In the meantime, check out our other podcasts by searching for The Economist on your favourite podcast app. I'm Tom Standage, and in London in 2022, this is The Economist.